0: Within the girdle of these walls are now can find two mighty monarchs. Someone has written on this with urine, or this is some very deep meta shit. We don't know. You guys just... I have no idea. I did not open or read anything. woman who let me into Eastfold Auditorium turned to me and said well, good luck and then disappeared around the corner I found two familiar faces former theater professors of mine, Henry and Jeff I had entered Eastfold prepared for an assault not a reunion I embraced them both and we caught up for a moment before the inevitable question came up I asked them, Are you Virgil? They both looked at me as if I was crazy. I don't know what's going on. All I know is you've got a task tonight. Jeff and I can be there, or we can leave, Henry said to me. What does that even mean? I asked. You'll just have to wait and see. At that point, Henry and Jeff led me around the corner into the main auditorium. The students had just finished up a rehearsal and were starting to leave. Henry and Jeff began to turn off all the lights in the auditorium and put the ghost light on stage. A ghost light is a long-standing tradition in theaters around the world, in which a single bare light bulb is left on stage at night so that the ghosts of a theater can have something to see by. Theater ghosts are renowned for coming back in the middle of the night to relive old performances. With only the ghost light and myself left on stage, Henry and Jeff handed me a single piece of paper and went to sit down in the front row. I opened the piece of paper and it read, Rules of Engagement Number one document your task with a video and send it to Virgil upon completion at this email address. Number two, collect a talisman from the task to present at a later date. No sooner had I looked up to ask Henry and Jeff what was going on, than Henry handed me a thick piece of parchment paper bound by a wax seal. I cracked it open, and inside was a monologue from Henry V, typed on a typewriter. Give me one second to uh, collect myself here. Fill it. Let's do what we can. Henry took out the video camera, and we began. It would ascend the brightest heavens of invention. A kingdom for a stage. Princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swellings. I took that monologue for a ride. I love Henry V. It's by far my favorite Shakespearean play. If you're not familiar, it follows the story of King Henry V, as he puts behind him his days as a prince and struggles to become a king, become a man, and shoulder all the responsibilities that come with it. He leads a small English army against overwhelming forces, and defeats them. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchs, whose high, upreared, and abutting fronts these perilous, narrow ocean parts of sun... Henry's speeches in that play stir my soul. Whoever did this, whoever Virgil is, knows me, and they know me very well. Admit ye chorus to this history, who prologue light, your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge our play. When I had finished, Henry produced one last piece of paper and handed it to me. And now your task, sir. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Oh, he handed me a scroll tied with a purple ribbon. As I unwrapped it, I found only a blank piece of paper. So now I'm left with two options right now. I have no idea what the task is. Someone has written on this with urine, and it's going to become visible under heat. I don't care later anymore. (laughs) Or this is some very deep meta shit, telling me that I need to script my own life. I don't know if I'm getting warmer or colder. We don't know. You guys just—I have no idea. I do not open or read anything. Have you seen that this is entirely blank? I have not. Now hold her to the light bulb and see if it can warm it up. What the fuck does this mean? <laughs> we don't know. Henry's been more involved with this than I've been, so. Okay. If do he doesn't know, I know. I know. I have no idea what was written on either of those papers. how much can you tell me I told you everything I know Henry's story was that he received an anonymous package with instructions to meet me at 10:45 in Eastfold and provide the three documents to me in order It's suspicious I know but then Henry Jeff and I spent the next 10 minutes using both the ghost light and a box of matches to try and get invisible ink to show up on the blank piece of paper. I swear to you, they were so excited, I knew they couldn't be involved. They were just as much in the dark as I was. After ten minutes, though, there was still no text on the paper. Two college girls who had wandered into the auditorium were sitting in the audience now, watching this whole thing unravel. They both kept saying, "'It's just a blank piece of paper.' I don't know if it's because I grew up during the Cold War, or if I just truly believe that everything is a little more magical than it seems. But I knew there had to be invisible ink on the piece of paper. I took it home and got to work. I took the piece of paper home, and Tawny and I spent the entire night holding it over the fire on our gas range. One minute, two minute, three minutes. Eventually, the piece of paper started to brown, heat up, and right before it started to catch on fire, text emerged on the top. I had mentioned earlier that I was turning 30 this week. My birthday had come and gone on Saturday. Today was Monday when I received the message. But the week prior, I'd been searching back in the past a little bit. In undergrad, I always used to go with my good buddy Tristan to a graveyard. There, buried side by side, were two sisters, Lucille and Nettie Larson. Lucille had been born in 1906 and died in 1922. Nettie had been born in 1904 and died in 1924. They were only 16 and 20 years old. Here these two sisters were buried side by side and they had always intrigued us when we were an undergrad. Tristan and I used to go to their gravesites and talk about our lives, the deep mysteries in life and everything confounding us. Since that time, I've always wondered what led to the early death of Lucille and Nettie at so young an age. To this day, I don't know much. I know that they were daughters of a man named Fletcher who had moved from the Midwest up to Alaska and then taken his family down to the Puyallup region. At the turn of the century, he, his wife and seven kids made a living here in the lumber industry. Today, Lucille and Nettie are buried in Sumner, just outside of Puyallup in the shadow of Tacoma. I hadn't been back to visit the two sisters in maybe eight years. The week before Virgil contacted me, I finally went back to pay my respects. It was that visit that filled me with so much anxiety as a message started to appear on the blank piece of paper. Okay. Okay. Seek us. Though though we we make make no sound, sound, we lie lie and wait wait below below the the ground. ground. (laughs) Though we we breathe. Not the air. Oh my gosh. Still the winds blow through our hair. hair. Near to death, you must go where back to life, to life we do grow. Flowers tell us, lovers. Loves no. Lo- loves no, what is that? Loves no lack? lack? Loves no. Lark? Lark. Our dreams are real, take some bark. Oh. That's crazy. So, what does it mean? Oh my gosh. By Lucille and Nettie's grave is a tree. I honestly don't know what kind. It looks almost like a birch, but the bark is splintered apart and something almost sinister looks like it's coming out of it. It's a gnarled, weeping, terrifying tree. Tristan and I called it the tree that eats the dead. I'm pretty sure the message is about this place. The tree in the graveyard next to Lucille and Nettie. Which means that whoever Virgil is knew that I went back to the graveyard recently. Is this you? Who? Are you Virgil? I, there's no possible way that I could be Virgil. I'm not Virgil. I swear. Don't lie I'm to like, me. Listen, I swear to you that I am not Virgil. How could I be Virgil? I don't know. I don't know anything. You're getting crazy. I'm... (laughs) no! The thing was, Tawny wasn't wrong. I really had begun to suspect everyone. And I still had no idea who Virgil was. I knew people were involved but they were all in the dark and couldn't give me any more information. At this point, Tawny could have been involved or she might not have been, but even if she was, I don't think she was genuinely Virgil. I had to find the head of the snake and so it seemed the best way to do that was to go to the graveyard. The next night, I decided to go. I took my friend Jackie Roberts. She seemed to have no involvement whatsoever, and I needed someone I could trust to come along and bounce ideas off of, because I started to feel like I was losing my grip on sanity. For a moment there, I even began to wonder if, perhaps, I had gained the ability to travel through time in the future, and that I went back and set this all up for myself. Because everything had a flair that was normally reserved for things I would do. That night, when we arrived at the graveyard, we began the long walk out to Lucille and Nettie. The Sumner Graveyard is a neglected brush stroke of land in between the main arterial and the railroad. The gravestones there are mostly from the turn of the century. When we arrived, it felt as though the evening had been scripted. A dense fog lay over the graveyard, and in the tree that we made our way for, an owl perched, watching us as we approached. I took out my knife and took a piece of bark from the tree. I let Virgil know. Then, standing in the mist and fog in the middle of the graveyard, we waited. That's when the email arrived. I looked down at my phone and had a new message from an address of course I didn't recognize. All it said was, Lucille and Nettie speak. It was an audio file. And when I pushed play, this is what I heard. Although you cannot see our glee, we're grateful for your company. And while we too will never wake, we send you for your spirit's sake to where you found your wedding cake. Meet your guide at 6:45 on Wednesday. Shadows. And just like that, it came together for me. This was a real clue, a real, tangible clue. I could finally rule out Tawny and Paul and Jackie. As creepy and unsettling as the message was, it was recognizable. I knew now that it was my good friends, Tristan, Julie, Travis, and Val who were involved, though I didn't know to what extent. It was strange because they all live in New York now, but their voices so recognizable and their signature handiwork on this was a real clue. All I had to do now was sleep through the night and then meet my guide tomorrow. But sleep was elusive. I had so many questions and even a little bit of anxiety. The clue was an obvious reference to where I got my wedding cake, Carina Bakery. The time was suspicious though, 6.45pm. Because on Wednesday night, I was going to a movie at 7.15 at the Grand Cinema, which is right next door to Karina. Their timing had been uncanny. How they had pulled this all off from New York, I didn't know. I wanted to know who their accomplice was. So at 6.45 on Wednesday, I went to Karina Bakery. I didn't know if the New York crowd was explicitly involved in this, or if they were just cogs in the machine. Part of me still wondered if there wasn't some Moriarty, some supervillain behind the whole thing, who was trying to draw me out or drive me insane. This was, after all, the most fabulous birthday prank, or the most ingenious revenge. I walked through the door at Karina and didn't see anyone. They were closing in ten minutes. I made my way to the back, and in the far corner of the coffee shop was a table, two chairs, two glasses of wine, and the one person I didn't expect. Join me Wednesday morning as I finally confront my Moriarty. Tonight's episode of 30 Year Quest was made with special thanks and consideration to Kevin McLeod for the music and with loving support from the family. As always, I'm Captain Chris Stottinger, and we'll see you on Wednesday morning.